Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between, and of course, the ongoing COVID-19, oh, what have you, pandemic, crisis, uh, public health emergency of international concern, insert your preferred word here. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Rumble, Odyssey, YouTube, Rockfin, and Locals to support and join a burgeoning research community and help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. Oh, there's Matthew. Hey, jumping right in early. Well, this is Matthew Crawford. Um, and he's, well, I'll, I'll finish my script. I'm a musician, producer, singer, songwriter, so on, coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia. And I'll be your host for today with Matthew Crawford over on that side. How are you, Matthew? I'm good, Liam. Having my uh, lab leak coffee. Your lab leak coffee? Can I see? Uh, oh, did JJ get you that for Christmas? A rounding the earth uh, fan sent me this mug. That's incredible. <laughs> I, I, that may be gain of function coffee, but it's fair trade gain of function coffee, <laughs> which means it was made in a lab in Ecuador. Anyway, so um, today we've we've got a very exciting discussion. Um, we have two guests who are supposed to come on, though um, one of them is not yet here, which is totally fair because he is in New Zealand and may be asleep. But we do have one of our guests, a very good friend of mine. Please allow me to introduce to the show, Gudrun Welder. Hello, Gudrun. Hi. Hi, Gudrun. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Good to meet you in person, Matthew. I've been a fan of yours for a long time. And yes, obviously a fan of Liam. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yes, we're very happy to have you here. Um, the premise of today's show is uh, we're, we're hope. Well, first, before we get into it, because your introduction will help introduce the premise. Do you want to explain to the audience who you are? Give a quick background for those who may not know you. Yes. Okay. My name is Gudrun Welder. I grew up in Montana. Um, and ever since I was young, I did want to study. Uh, I didn't know when I was young about what I wanted to study was naturopathic medicine. Uh, but I did my undergrad in New Mexico. Um, my parents really wanted me to be a regular medical doctor, not a naturopath. And so I ended up uh, doing some genetic engineering stuff with um, microarray toxicology stuff. Um, when I first started my career, we were working for companies like Bayer and stuff. And then... Um, I realized it just didn't fit who I am. And also I noticed a lot of corruption at that time. Um, so then I just quit my job and started working in health food stores, selling supplements. Um, at that time, I think I still didn't believe that natural health was a thing, but then over time you start to see enough people just taking vitamins or eating well and getting over these conditions that um, the doctors tell you, you can't get over. Uh, and so I did that for a long time, studied under a bunch of herbalists, traveled the world looking like studying traditional medicine, eventually came to Canada in 2010, studied naturopathic medicine. And now I've been practicing since 2014. So that's eight years. 
And now there's, you and I have had a number of very excellent conversations um, and uh, there's some fascinating uh, ways in which your life was before and the way your life is now, as you kind of touched on. Um, but the, in the COVID context, uh, you're, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, which I know I'm not, you're a volunteer with the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So what, what, uh, what, what work do you do with the CCCA? How does what you just described then lead into tackling this COVID issue? Um, that's so funny, eh? Because sometimes you've asked me in different, in other uh, conversations, I think you've tried to ask me whether what I do created my attitude towards COVID and the lockdown and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and definitely when you work in alternative medicine, you know, dealing with people who have vaccine injuries and things like that, um, you will tend to have a different perspective, I guess, than most people who are, uh, typical medical doctors. My brother is a emergency room doctor. So I know how those people are taught and what they think. And, you know, we're not that different, but, um, you know, from the time I was working in the health food store, seeing how important things like vitamin D or those uh, eating well, whatever that means, um, how that can change people's conditions. I think it did set me up to realize, I mean, even before uh, COVID came along, I was always noticing, oh, weird. Why is a teenager dying from the flu? There must be like comorbidities that are going on because you because that would happen and you would see it in the news and I would think about it. So then when COVID came, I was like, is it didn't strike me as that different from flus that we had had before. Um, and I'm not saying it's not a serious condition. Um, it's just that I didn't understand the response to it. I hope I just answered your question. Yeah. Right. One, one of the things that, that's true about COVID that not enough people seem to pay attention to is that uh, the majority of COVID deaths are pneumonia deaths, which would also be how people you know, might die of the flu if they have uh, comorbidities or their immune system's not um, up to snuff. Um, and, and it may be that once you, it, it, it's, it's a little over 50%, if I, um, if I understand the statistics that I've looked at and, but if you, if you, you know, sort of sweep away positive tests that probably were not, you know, actual symptomatic cases or possibly just false positives period, then it may be much higher. And, uh, and we know going back to like the Spanish flu, uh, 80 or 85% of people who died, died of pneumonia. So, um, that, that's an observation that I think is is extremely important and not enough people have thought about outside of the context of simply what they were told on the news. Yeah. So then, so you have that, that, uh, that instinct combined with that professional understanding, you know, going into this saying that this doesn't make sense in terms of how we're reacting to this compared to how we've reacted to very similar uh, presentations of illness in the past. So can you talk about uh, what happened as COVID began to uh, become institutionalized and you being a practicing um, naturopath, um, what, what, what were you told? Uh, what was expected of you? And uh, what, what were, were there any inconsistencies in, uh, in instruction perhaps from the colleges, et cetera? 
Okay. That's a long story. Where do I where do I start with that one? Shoot. Inconsistencies for sure. Um but interesting. I know where and and also as a practicing naturopath, um I have to be very careful to whether I'm talking about my um beliefs or or what's yes. going on. And if um, I can just, if I can put an asterisk there, because I yeah. can speak freely, I'm not under any kind of, there's, n n I don't have a uh, a college who's going to revoke my license to be a musician. So I can say, people need to understand, this is worldwide, but especially in Canada, we've got this uh, system of pseudo-governmental medical and allied colleges that, as we've learned, have a all-encompassing chokehold on uh, not just medical doctors, but every kind of practitioner of anything related to health you could think of. And Gudrun, if you can, if there is anything else that, that you can add that might clarify how that works, um, I just want people to understand, uh, we do have to be ever so slightly careful of, of what kind of spot we put Gudrun on, but her and I have had this talk before and there's nothing that can be said that, that uh, like we should be able to talk freely. I think, yep. but understanding that she is under a slight bit of a gun from a, from a college that in my opinion is not behaving appropriately, but that's just my stand. So with that in mind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, one of the main inconsistencies that started, and I told you this before, but Matthew hasn't heard it, but something that I found very interesting is there was a huge inconsistency in the beginning between our um, associations, because I'm under the Canadian Association of Naturopathic Doctors and I'm under the um, Ontario Association of Naturopathic Doctors. Um, I support both of them. I think associations are good in general to promote the profession and that's what they're there for. I also volunteer with the College of Naturopaths of Ontario, which is our regulatory body. And um, I was well versed in everything that was being told to us by our regulatory body. And what was being told to us by our regulatory body was that in the very beginning that we were a quote, an essential service. I don't like that there were essential services and services that weren't considered essential, but that was what they deemed the situation, which actually for me was not a benefit because we were told that we, according to uh, the naturopaths, we're supposed to follow the Ontario um, Ministry of Health, which said we cannot turn away anyone that comes to our office. If they need essential help, meaning if they're in severe pain or whatever's happening, we can't turn them away. So we actually were required to stay open. The interesting part was that on social media with the um, associations being uh, maybe influenced by specific things happening in media, they were telling our profession, you cannot practice, you cannot see people in person. So right off the get-go, I was being threatened by friends who were listening to the association that they were going to turn me in and my clinic was going to be shut down. But then meanwhile, I'm looking to my regulatory body who's saying, you have to follow what... Um, what the Ministry of Health is saying, uh, that also was not good because then we had to keep our business open. I was working with a chiropractor at the time. He was under the same 
essential service situation. But of course, people weren't coming in. So we lost 90% of our business. Um, and then our the whole um, area that we were in was a strip mall area. Every small business there, we got really hit hard because the people who own the business were not giving any rent relief and they don't have to. So um, that was a really scary time. And all I was trying to do was just listen to the Ministry of Health, which is what I was supposed to. Three months later, the association said, oh, whoops, sorry, we told you you can't practice. We were wrong. But meanwhile, there was a lot of like fallout and negative things that happened in that three months time. So. Mm. Okay, yeah. so so uh, the important thing is the effect that had on patients or on people in general. What was the result? You know, uh, how were your clients or naturopathic uh, patients? Um, what 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 happened to them as a result of this weird period of one government agency saying you have to stay open, the other one saying you have to close? What what was the result on the patients? The result was that um, like long story short, people who used to come into me for acupuncture for pain relief were then choosing because they were told on the TV that it's selfish to help yourself right now or to get help. So they were choosing to go on morphine or, you know, <sighs> paths that I was not really happy with uh, when people could come in weekly and, and handle their pain with some acupuncture or something like that. So a lot of different things like that, but um, there were the people who still came into us, but then a lot of people just didn't. And yeah, health in general, people were being told to stay inside. I mean, we've heard this over and over. It just wasn't really supported, um, you know, how to eat. We, I'm not allowed still to say like, boost your immune system or things like that. But um, it definitely wasn't good for people to sit there and drink and um, eat sugar in front of their TV for two years. So, yeah. So vodka does not stop a pandemic. <laughs> Who knows? It, it could. <laughs> it might. Well, that would you talk about well, Matthew. I don't want to cut you off, but I just want to add. I noticed that there was this weird. There were a few weird things that happened in relation to both alcohol and things like morphine. You know, um, uh, opioids that obviously shot through the roof, uh, both illicitly and on the books. But there were weird social messaging phenomenon going on, like this whole day drinking phenomenon or the happy hour over zoom and the notion that, well, Hey, alcohol is a disinfectant. So it'll just kill the viruses inside you. And I remember noticing how persistent that was and knowing of course that alcohol weakening the immune system was likely going to have the opposite effect. But anyway, Matthew, what were you going to say? Well, before I go into what I was going to say, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that aspect of the pandemic. Um, I, I barely drink. Uh, and so it, it didn't really occur to me to pay attention to that, but, you know, keeping people isolated and then, um, with the ability to drink probably, you know, probably really did, uh, weaken some people's immune systems. Um, but, uh, so I actually want to take a step back because, um, you got me thinking, uh, you got, you really got my brain revved up when you started talking about the fact that, that you went in, you were going into allopathic medicine and you weren't sure 
if natural health was a thing. And I just want to stop there and, and like, and just mention when it comes to a field that is, you know, scientific, it's interesting. People are going to view alternative medicine as non-scientific, but this self-skepticism that you had going in is exactly the scientific mindset. So you're going into this domain that gets attacked as, as non-scientific uh, with the appropriate scientific mindset, which is really interesting to me automatically. And and I'm guessing that um, I've had a similar perspective in my past thinking through uh, forms of medicine other than allopathic medicine and uh, and having certain biases. Um, and, and I don't even know how many of those biases are or were correct because there are so many forms of alternative medicine that when people start thinking outside of allopathic medicine, I think that our biases are to lump everything together and that there are dozens of forms of alternative medicine. And, and it may be that some of them uh, work much better than others. Um, you know, when you start talking about alternative medicine, people are including acupuncture, naturopathy, chiropractic, astrology, homeopathy, crystal healing, and, and of course, these things can have, you know, wildly different levels of efficacy, but um, naturopathy is probably the most simple in terms of, of just being able to say, does, does the food we eat, does what we put in our body affect our health? And it just seems like, you know, such a different question. Uh, and, and, I, and I'm not denigrating any of those others that I named necessarily, though um, I have <laughs> Wikipedia has a very long list and, and there are a few that uh, that I have, you know, doubts about. Um, but uh, it, it, just sort of going back there, I, I don't think I've made like one firm statement here, but I, I can see where it is that, that you would be coming from and why it is that that perhaps um, the general public doesn't know what to have a firm opinion about and what not to. Yeah. Um, you know what I've realized over time, what, who naturopaths are, and I'm pretty proud of it really because what we are, have you heard of the Flexner report? Do you know what the, that's the no. Rockefeller, uh, yeah. that when Rockefeller came in and, and took over Western medicine and they yeah. commissioned, was it Carnegie? Uh, Car well, I guess it was Flexner. Uh, <laughs> yeah. To do a but report, we are, yeah, you can elaborate. We are the people who were doing medicine the traditional way before Flexner came in. And I mean, that's how I see it. And, and it is true. The, the tenants, the basic tenets of, uh, where our background comes, although it is a mixture of quite a few different modalities. And of course, I intermingle with like all sorts of Reiki practitioners or psychics or that sort of thing. Um, but what I do is very different because I'm looking at blood work in a therapeutic lens. And um, anyway, but what is my point? We were the original doctors. This is who doctors were. We, we used to go to people's house and treat people with like things like hot and cold water, hydrotherapy, just making sure people get outside. Um, all the sanitariums that people now say didn't work, they actually did work. People used to go to sanitariums to get better. They would hang out, eat good food that was from a farm, swim in the water, and then all of these supposedly horrible conditions would get better. Now history has been rewritten to say, Oh, until Flexner report came in, medicine was, you know, overrun with all these quacks and stuff. Uh, 
that's that's BS. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I'm making a firm statement either, but um, it really does go back to bef basically before the pharmaceutical, what is the pharmaceutical industry now came along and said, no, medicines need to be these synthesized forms of things made from petroleum products. Right. And that's only good medicine. Uh, we just continue doing what we did. And, and through time, we've had to fight over and over all of these different forms of uh, battles against what we do. But we are the original what a doctor was in the beginning. Yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, allopathic medicine, I, I don't know how it happened in Canada, but there was a struggle in the U S where allopathic medicine tried to create a monopoly saying that other schools of medicine could not even call themselves schools of medicine. Um, but if I could focus in on homeopathy for a moment, because, uh, with a lot of these forms of medicine, I, I still don't even know what the best definitions are, right? Like homeopathy that was created, uh, interestingly, uh, 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 this is a pandemic story because homeopathy was created with the medicine from which hydroxychloroquine is derived, which was quinine, which was taken from the bark of the uh, chinchoa tree, if I'm saying that correctly. Um, yeah. and, and the principle was like cures like. Now, is, is that, does that principle apply to all homeo homeopathic medicine or is there something that has changed or evolved within uh within the field since um the i can't remember the original guy's name um hanuman yeah hanuman, bark. yeah i'm so excited that you just brought that up because i've been like fantasizing about talking about homeopathy with you guys because it's so it is my favorite modality i know it has a bad rap but it's been around for a long time because it works and when I get the patients that um, they've been to multiple other practitioners and multiple other specialists and naturopaths, and we can't figure it out, if I can get the right homeopathic remedy, yes, like cures like. What does that mean exactly, though, like cures like? Um, anyway, what I was going to say is that it's such a profound form of medicine, and it's so fascinating. But yes, like cures like, in other words, what Hahnemann found was people were dying from malaria. Uh, if somebody who didn't have malaria ate cinchona bark, it would cause malaria-like symptoms. If somebody had malaria and they ate cinchona bark, it would make them better. So um, in other words, most people think that if you get burnt, what you wanna do is put your hand under cold water to stop the burning. But I don't know if either of you guys have ever tried, like if you have a really bad burn, what you actually wanna do is put it under some warm water and that will treat the burn so that it doesn't scar and hurt and all of those things. You put it under as warm water as you can. Whoa, then, so I've yeah. been doing myself harm. I, I have only ever been told firmly and authoritatively the first thing you have to do when you get a burn is go ice cold water for like five minutes to prevent yeah. further burning. But then you'll notice as soon as you pull your hand out, it starts hurting again. Yes. If you put it under hot water and it'll, it'll hurt a little bit, but you do as much as you can stand for like a few minutes, all of a sudden it doesn't hurt anymore. And it won't but pain is good, isn't it, Gudrun? Doesn't pain mean it's working? 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, I hear what you're saying. But so, and, and you know, one one thing I'll interject. Um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll spoil the party, but hopefully in in a way that's uh, that's reasonable and scientific. Um, I'm I'm sure that there are instances in which um, you know, light cures light doesn't have uh, doesn't necessarily have like uh, an analog in nature, right? Like it makes a lot of sense to me that, that, you know, this tree grew and existed, uh, you know, the Chinchona tree and, and that, uh, part of what it did to draw in, um, interaction with its environment was to provide this effect, which would help, you know, protect against the malaria and the mosquitoes. And so it's an interaction between, you know, different elements of nature, but does that mean that there is an interaction between nature and everything um, and, and there may be some things that, that aren't necessarily, that don't have an analog, you know, uh, in, in homeopathy. And so, you know, just, I, I kind of want to say that out loud because I think it's, it's important for people to know, like, you know, um, saying that homeopathic medicine works, doesn't mean that there's a homeopathic, you know, remedy for, I stubbed my toe or, or, you know, a homeopathic remedy for any, any possible, you know, ailment that you can get. But, uh, you know, once people realize that it's not a, um, like a mystical, cure-all right mm -hmm. then then i think that it, it becomes easier for people to look into what homeopathic uh, remedies uh, might be available and and i'll and i'll say this i have changed my opinion of it um substantially due to reading over the past three years in a in a good in a positive direction towards it or yes in a positive direction yeah. I well, know it just gets told it's not science, but there is a lot of you can see. So a lot of times they'll say because it's it the more diluted it is, the stronger it is also, which sounds counterintuitive. Uh, and so then they'll say once it's diluted past 30 C, which means it's been diluted one in 100 times, 30 times, there is no molecule of the actual structure in the medicine. But if you look at it under electron microscopes, there are like uh, nanoparticles that are being passed on. So people will say, oh, it's just this energy medicine. But I know that in the future, science will catch up and see what's actually happening there. But right now it is, it does seem like some weird nonsensical thing that shouldn't work for people. But yeah, I'm glad you're figuring that out, Matthew, because it, I think over time, fast forward 400 years, this is going to be what people are using primarily. Go ahead, Liam. Sorry, I interrupted. Well, hopefully sooner than 400 years, if only because th in theory, we should try to have as many high quality, but as many tools as possible to try to fix a problem. Um, I don't know what the success rate of something like chemotherapy and radiation is on cancer, but I don't get the impression it's overly high. So for example, like I, 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 and, and it seems to me, we've got a system where you have to first in this very specific example, go through chemotherapy radiation before you're even allowed to gain access, depending on how your healthcare system is set up to other less conventional treatments. Uh, and not all of them are experimental pharmaceuticals. Um, and, and I just also want to say the, the asterisk on this whole thing that helps frame it is you mentioned the petrochemical uh, nature of allopathic medicine. Um, you mentioned the, the concept of snakes, a snake oil salesman. Well, Rockefeller, that entire, that name 
it, it, you know, the Rockefeller fortune built off of the monopolization, another word that's already come up in this context, the monopolization of, of oil that then leads to the discovery and the manipulation of these petrochemical, uh, creating petrochemical medicines that then allowed for the monopolization in some form of the healthcare system, starting with the Flexner report. And ironically enough, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't Rockefeller Sr. the first snake oil salesman, at least in modern history that we talk about? Wasn't that his uh, thing? He quite literally went around and sold snake oil. Did um, he? I didn't know that. That's funny. Yeah, they, they called him Devil Bill. <laughs> that's that's true story. And 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 uh, uh, the term quack, by the way, um, comes from uh, allopathic uh, uh, medicine. Actually, not non-allopathic medicine. That was where um, the allopaths use or traditional, you know, whatever the medical, whatever you called the the accepted medical paradigm of the day. Um, doctors used quicksilver, mm. and that turned out to be quite dangerous, right? And uh, quicksilver became, you know, it was uh, quacksilver and. And uh, a doctor who used it was a quack. Uh, That's where that term comes from. So, okay. so it, it, it's it's amusing that the allopaths would use that terminology to demonize other forms of medicine. When you you sort of I, I bring that up to uh, when you look at it that way, there's sort of an inherent conflict of interest to the way this entire medical system in the Western world has evolved. Um, over the last century or, or so, I guess. And I'm curious, I, I hear a lot on that list of, of um, uh, uh, naturopath, I guess it was the Wikipedia page that you had pulled up, Matthew. I'm wondering, one name that I always see on lists of these kind of practices is traditional Chinese medicine. And for some reason, that seems to be articulated on its own. It stands out as its own field, its own form of practice. Can you explain to me what what traditional Chinese medicine is uh, in the traditional sense and why it remains kind of its own thing. Um, and, and how did that evolve differently than the Western world? And are there other Eastern medicines that have a proven track record in the modern world? Um, like, did we have divergent, like we've got the Western allopathic and then the Eastern traditional, can you elaborate on that entire, what's going on there? Okay, help me if I if I am not answering part of what you're saying. I'll start with why does that seem like its own thing? Uh, mm. Part of why it seems like its own thing because studying Chinese medicine in itself, like just learning to read, um, like successfully know how to diagnose somebody by looking at somebody's tongue, that takes 30 years of practice to like become a, a master, you know? So, I mean, I'm just throwing out numbers from different people who have said things. Everybody's gonna have different opinions about everything I say, but um, traditional Chinese medicine is just so all encompassing is what I would say. I know also because people who have gone to school for four years for traditional Chinese medicine, they want to be distinguished from uh, naturopaths specifically because, um, because that is, they went to school and they don't want us kind of overshadowing them is guess is I guess how I would see that. Um, so now there's like a lot of chiropractors or even physio uh, physios who would be more part of the allopathic uh, side of things who do acupuncture 
that would be quite different from a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner who does acupuncture because there's kind of one that's pain-based. The one with the chiropractors is more based specifically on pain. The one with traditional Chinese medicine is based on meridians and uh, the energetics of the different organs and what they mean, which is very different from Western ideas. Um, did I answer your question? Sorry. Yeah, that I... helps narrow it down for me a little. That, that makes okay. sense. The diagnosing based on si simply the tongue, that's one of those things that I, I would come at as tremendously skeptical. But I too am framed. I'm, I'm in the right mindset to, to, to suspend my disbelief enough to learn more. Um, that's very interesting. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, looking at this long list of different forms of medicine, uh, one thing that became clear to me in 2020 when I started to to look at um, different proposed solutions uh, for COVID-19, and of course, I would see people post some online and I would think, well, you know, how would they, how would they know, you know? Um, there's multiple levels of science. You know, you talked about looking at things on the microscopic level and figuring out why it is that things work, the mechanistic level. The mechanistic level is very, very hard, right? Um, the, the first level of science really is, is you know, looking at a medicine and saying, did it work, right? Um, having like a trial with a whole bunch of people. And the truth is, uh, even in allopathic medicine, though, you know, they don't want to admit this, um, that's all that gets done before most medicine is approved and very few mechanisms uh, sorry very few medicines that are approved have mechanistic explanations that are you know given with any trust very often they have proposed mechanisms and it's unknown but we only found out how aspirin works 10 years ago mm -hmm. right and so i think uh, a hurdle uh, it, there's sort of a um a a you know difference uh, a double standard in the hurdle that a lot of things, you know, something like pine needle tea or certain Chinese herbal remedies, um, they do sometimes get tested for efficacy. And, and you know, overall, they've had a pretty good track record when you start looking up trial results. And most people just wouldn't even know that. But um, we have the second level of science of looking at things on a molecular basis. And because of that, I think that there is the ability for doctors to um, you know, run around discussions of, of microbiology and sort of create an illusion that a different level of science has been done. Um, though it seems allopathic medicine uh, has actually veer, veered more and more toward uh, some of uh, homeopathy over the years. For instance, uh, one of the things that the drug companies have been doing, especially over the last two decades, is they have uh, assembled databases of toxins, right? tens of thousands of them and they go through and, and test these toxins to see what kind of a reaction they might have on the body. And ultimately um, that's really in the domain of, of what homeopathy was doing. It's just that, you know, now they have this huge database catalog and they can sort of pretend it was, it was their domain to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, okay. I, uh, I want to pull up John's, Comment here, Quicksilver, a.k.a. Mercury, also a component of many modern vaccines. Yes. So first question, is Quicksilver Mercury? Yes. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, okay, I think it is. I just wanted to double check. Now, um, Gudrun, I'd be very curious. You and I um, have been talking about um, interviewing a very interesting person. And uh, for Christmas, you sent me this beautiful book called Vaccination 
um, and naturopathic medicine in their own words. And it's, it appears to be a collection of essays or um, various, uh, various articles, various times that naturopaths have given their perspective on vaccination. Am I getting that right? Yeah, and even some that back then they wouldn't have been considered naturopaths, they would have been considered medical doctors, right? But now we can look at them, they had naturopathic values, but right. I don't know why I want to distinguish that. Just, I guess they're not all weirdos like me. They, they were oh. <laughs> medical doctors <laughs> back then. Well, well, we'll come back to why you're still, there's still a further level of your uniqueness in this whole thing and sort of the reversal you went through or the, the um, maybe not the reversal, maybe the, the escalation. Um, but I wonder if you can explain, there's, there's two things. I wonder if you can summarize broadly what the, the view of vaccination as a concept or as, you know, in practice what is the view of naturopathic medicine on vaccination? And then I'm going to ask you a little more specifically about our current situation. But I want to I want to know more broadly first. Yeah. OK, so again, I'm just going to say whatever I say, there's going to be many naturopaths who would say disagree with what I'm saying. And there, there's definitely a split in the profession right now. Um, but. I will say historically, because I've been told this from mentors who are, you know, my, my elders in the profession, that um, vaccination was not like generally looked at kindly. Although, of course, many naturopaths today would accept, you know, basically doing the, the, the required vaccines um, but uh, what do I want to say about that? Definitely back in the day there, I don't know if you've gotten that far, Liam, but there's situations where there's like four different cities that I think it was during the Spanish flu that purposefully did not get vaccinated because they were, uh, they were not excited about what was happening and um, or what they were using to vaccinate people with. And those four cities according to what is in that book and according to literature that this woman went back and found, um, she went back to all the archives of these original print naturopathic articles and stuff. Uh, the four cities that did not get the vaccinations had the less, least deaths compared to the rest of the population. There, there's like all sorts of kind of scientific studies that were done back then. Um, but as there was also back then very clear uh, political um, influences and um, economic influences that had, you know, most people try just kind of going with the vaccination protocol. But for a long time, uh, naturopaths have been looking at this in a different way than most people would look at it. Yeah. That's not to say that there aren't, I really think there's a huge difference between what a vaccine was in a mRNA vaccine. So, absolutely, um, and I'm not allowed to say anything anyway, but it's, it's, yeah, I just wanted to distinguish that. Well, that does lead me to my next question and you've already sort of answered it. What is the situation with your 
your uh, professional regulators and your ability to to discuss vaccines in general today and specifically the covid injections what what are you restricted in what you can say yeah like very likely just what i said just now if somebody wanted to be a jerk could take my license away so i i cannot speak on uh i cannot speak on vaccines i cannot say anything because they are out of my scope so yeah, I'm allowed to talk to my patients if they ask me. I'm allowed to have a little bit of a um, personal conversation with them, but definitely publicly, the official um, what I should officially say is I don't know anything about vaccines and I'm not able to talk on them. Yeah, Matthew, what's your take? What's your what? what how does that make you feel? Um. Well, that that is, uh, oh gosh, I mean that's that's lysenkoism. Um, yeah, that that's the government deciding uh, what it is that people can say about science, which means that it's no longer science. Yeah. Um, yeah. W- w- the moment politics steers into science is is a terrifying moment, and we've allowed that creep for decades uh, without anyone pushing back. And so, you know, here we are. And it also means that we've had an entire, you know, generation or two or three or, or, you know, heading in this direction um, where people got into a system that was already veering in that direction. And and therefore they had to create a narcissistic shield in order to, you know, uh, set up a barrier between themselves and, and actually thinking through the actual science. And of course I'm saying that I'm guilty of that. The moment that I said um, I knew, I, I, I rejected more alternative medicine than I would now. You know, not everything uh, that I showed on that list uh, do I believe um, is is something that would uh, stand up to good scientific scrutiny, or I believe that parts of each of them um, should be tested uh, under a scientific lens before I would I would want to accept them. Maybe that's the better way to put it. Um, but you know, when you have a system that brings in you know, thousands of doctors a year in North America and, and you know, hundreds of thousands around the world into a system that is automatically set up to take cues from political agencies. That is a scary prospect already. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, governments, I think governments think that they are, um, that they should have this authority to be able to push and pull levers. Uh, sometimes they may, they may even believe that they are creating policies that are bad for people uh, individually, but think that they're doing good overall, right? Like there are people who think that um, it may save the economy perhaps to take pensions off the books, things like that, right? The the temptations at that level um, separate government from, uh, from being trustworthy on a scientific level. And that's something that should be always taken into account. Uh, you know, we have separation of church and state. I think that we should have separation of science and state in general, but the fact that we don't, we, you know, we, we've got to stand back and think, you know, what can we do in the meantime? What can we do on our own or, uh, or how do we create a system that, that, you know, the government wouldn't even be involved in. And the moment we start talking on that level, people think, oh, you're talking about something that's unregulated. We're going to have snake oil salesmen everywhere. Right. Um, and, and you know what? We might, 
initially have some people who step in. I would say we already have so much of that in the pharmaceutical industry that it's probably not going to be worse than it is now. But um, the truth is we probably have to learn to deal with con artists in order to have the best system with the best equilibrium. Otherwise we're going, you know, uh, you know, by, by not learning to tackle a few con artists who will hurt people, uh, we are learning to be dependent on a system that can pull levers entirely and say, you cannot do any of this, or this is the science even before we, we have, you know, good testing and good data. Just to read John's comment here, if we are not able to ask skeptical questions, to interrogate those who tell us that something is true, to be skeptical of those in authority, then we are up for grabs for the next charlatan, political or religious, who comes rambling along. Carl Sagan. Um, and then he follows up with the equally apropos roads, hell, intentions. You know the saying. Um, well, and it just seems to me that, like, I guess, in theory, these, you know, the, the colleges and the associations, they exist to, as you mentioned before, to support the profession, uh, but also to protect the patient in theory, which suggests that at some point there's been uh, events or there's been occasions where patients have been hurt because doctors have or because practitioners of whatever field have done something that then led to further restrictions on what that person could do. And so and I can see that being the case in many fields. What I don't necessarily see and what I'm highly skeptical of, and this is my opinion based on what I've seen, I, I'm not convinced there are any such incidents in the naturopathic field of discussing vaccines in a way that then caused harm to the patient. So that, but I may be wrong. Um, but in the context, because it seems to me what, what happens when you silence, if you've got a, a pie chart and it's made up of, you know, people who are like vaccinologists, um, other allopathic type medicines, you know, surgeons, uh, traditional Chinese, like the whole spectrum of health and medicine. And you say in this context, only this part of the pie is allowed to say anything. And if anyone else says anything, you'll be sanctioned. You, you may, you know, be sent to jail depending on your jurisdiction. Um, well, what's the result of that? Uh, nothing good, I think. That to me sounds kind of like, depending on who's controlling the system, that's how you institutionally push a charlatan through. Um, I just don't see the benefit, I guess. So I'm kind of incredulous. Um, I'm kind of incredulous. Um, I feel like I'm totally biased on that because uh, what I do every day, I feel like for the most part, is undo the damage that the allopathic system, not totally, because I totally believe that there are, like, we need good surgeons and we need a lot of things. And some people do need to be on drugs, but definitely the, the movement of like, oh, if your cholesterol is this level, you need to be on statins. Well, now we, we're slowly moving it down. So everybody's on statins, everybody's on BP meds, everybody's on some form of insulin control drug. Um, it's frustrating, definitely being me. And but 
I know this sounds horrible from somebody on the other side of the mirror. It's just you see how much damage is told, like how many times people have been told you're never going to survive this condition. There's nothing you can do about it. We've done everything we can. So now you're SOL basically. And then I need to reteach people, please don't believe you're about to die. Let's look at all these other options there, you know, and uh, so, yeah, it does feel weird that we're the ones under attack of whether we're the snake oil salesman and you just can like witness all the damage that's happening from over uh, prescribing drugs and different things. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. It does. I'm just going to point out, we uh, in the chat, our second guest is Bart K. And we've got a comment from him. Apologies, team. The StreamYard platform does not allow me to share my camera or audio. I battled with it for 30 minutes. There's a serious compatibility issue. So now we know he, he is here. It looks like there's some unfortunate technical difficulties. I haven't seen it manifest like this before. Um, but uh, I'm going to see if I can still help him get on just through the comments. Um, yeah, but at least now we know where he is. <laughs> um, and and Bart, if you're listening, uh, you might try uh, different browsers. Uh, yeah. You may have already done that, but it's just the first thing that comes to mind for me. Um, one thing I'm going to say is uh, this is actually one of the more meandering conversations that that we've had on rounding the earth. And and I was I was sitting here thinking about that, and it occurred to me that part of the reason that allopathic medicine seems so sort of solid to people is this constant projected image where you have people speaking with authority who are staying on message, right? Um, that, that's part of what the uh, what going to medical school does for, for all of these people is whether or not the science is actually good. And, you know, like you mentioned with uh, statins, um, you know, I, I think the science may not be good for a lot of things. Or, or the science may have started out good with some things and then we overused them. I think that's true for like heart stints, for instance, mm -hmm. um, that uh, up to a certain line, it, it helps prolong life expectancy and, and quality of life. And then beyond a certain point, it winds up doing the opposite. And we wound up with an equilibrium where we spent a whole lot of money and now, it, you know, um, some people got rich, but, but it, it's no longer overall a good thing, but it would be good for a lot of people still. Um, right. And, and, but, but I think, you know, where this goes wrong is the moment you have this, this system where almost all of the doctors that people see on TV are within one school and you have consistent messaging, it looks like there is like solid, you know, well understood science, whereas what there seems to be is a bias for the acceptance of synthetics beyond some invisible line that distinguished this allopathic medicine from all of the other schools. And that's what I'm getting, you know, through this conversation and, and other reading that I've done and, and, you know, during the pandemic in particular, um, that seems to be where we have this problem. And, and maybe the problem should, <clears throat> maybe one way to take care of the problem would be to have a school of medicine that is simply not defined on a level like that, because why? You know, why, why do we need to, you know, define, um, you know, if home, homeopathy, let's say homeopathy has X number of, of things that are, that are good medicines. And like I said, we know there are some good ones in there. Some of the most used medicines in the world, hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, that we know are great anti-malarials that um, also seem to be good antibacterials and maybe good antivirals too. Um, it, if, you know, if we just sort of accept this fact that we need to go through and figure out each one, 
then we wind up with something better. And I had debates for years over chiropractic medicine. And I'll even go ahead and admit this. Years ago, I actually started writing a book um, that was to discourage chiropractic medicine. And part of the reason for this is because chiropractic medicine, uh, it was uh, created by the Palmer family, D.D. Palmer, and, and they were very, um, they were anti-scientific by philosophy. And, and it wasn't even clear how it was that they came up with their medicines, with, with their mm. um, techniques, right? They, they yeah. would have uh, skeletons and, and cadavers and they would, you know, figure out how to crack bones. And, and I think that a lot of it very early on was probably harmful. They found some things that did help people and also some things were harmful. But, you know, these days, a lot of the things that were done have been incorporated into physical therapy because they have been observed on that sort of basic scientific level to be, you know, constantly good for people. And so those things have sort of crossed through this semi-permeable membrane of what we decide to call medicine. Yeah. Um, but if we just go ahead and accept that that's going to be the case, that an application of, of um, you know, basic testing principles to all of these things, maybe we'll find out that uh, I, I have I have great doubts about crystal healing, but maybe we will find out that some, you know, some strange tiny portion of it is helpful and we can discard other things that don't work after additional testing. But, you know, it, shouldn't science be the barrier and not you know, grouping these things by name. Yes. But yeah, again, back to just the, how things are set up with the allopathic medicine. A, a study is not considered a real study unless it's double blind, randomized, controlled. And that takes away individualized medicine completely. Um, yeah. Individualized medicine should be looking at each person individually instead of just saying all of these people right here should take this thing. And yeah. So, so that method in itself is flawed, but yeah, I know you understand other ways of science that we could actually look at what works and what doesn't work. And I wish yeah. the world were that way. Interestingly, I think that, that uh, the allopaths um, may shoot themselves in the foot over this one. And I'll tell you why um, right now there is sort of a movement to say, Hey, you know, big data can actually get around this need for an RCT, which is true in a sense. Um, there, you know, various methods, uh, statistically do sort of converge asymptotically with large numbers, right? If you run a, a trial so many times, um, uh, you know, if, if you run big data and just sort of sift for what happened with people, if you have a large enough data set, you're, you're going to come to the same conclusions of a good randomized control trial, for instance. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and big data, of course, big data scares people. It scares me the way that it's, that it's been used over the past you know, 20, 30 years. However, I think that we may have a movement toward decentralized big data where people actually have control and ownership over their data. And then if somebody wants to run a study, like what are the effects of uh, hydroxychloroquine with you know, respiratory illness in general or something like that, then what they could do is run a query and say, I'm going to make micro payments to all of the people that might be wearing some sort of a, a Fitbit type bracelet that keeps all their data and whatnot. And people who are willing can say, yes, I will... I will allow my data to be sucked up into this query anonymously and it will have personal attributes about me. And maybe that makes me identifiable, but I'll take that risk. It's my choice 
to allow my data to be hoovered up into, you know, some sort of uh, big data experiment for you know any particular agent. Um, and so I, I think that uh, we may, you know, because of the cryptocurrency world, and there's, you know, there's a lot of fighting over how that's going to be done. And I think it's, there's a better way and a worse way to do it. Um, but that uh, it's possible that we decentralize big data, and that may kill the RCT, um, authority, uh, RCT, uh, what's the right word, uh, orthodoxy, or um, <laughs> uh, that, that, that distinguishes inappropriately between the different types of medicines. That's a super uh, rosy way of looking at it. It would be amazing if that happens. I, of course, think there's going to be some kind of interest that gets in there and like changes the data a little bit somehow. But you understand the tech part more. So maybe you know how to keep it real data without it being um, messed with kind of a thing. If that's a possibility, that would be very amazing. Because there's that technological aspect, right? As you described, the vulnerabilities there. So long as that works, then there's who funds it, which is what John Such is pointing out here. The U.S. Federal Reserve influences what kind of science gets published in the U.S. through its influence over the budget of the National Science Foundation. Matthew's nodding, and I think that's probably one of several examples. So there's the gatekeeping of the financing of it. Then there's the how it's perceived. Because all of this, it only matters based on how uh you know public opinion but also the institutions themselves you know academia uh the regulators how they all interpret the meaning of whatever result through whatever format you you put out there do you know what i mean so there's there's who, who controls the media or who controls the public square to be able to then influence how people think about the result like the amount of studies that have come out that say one thing that then are interpreted by various institutions to mean something completely different is is astounding and what most people get is what they're told it means so there's a there's like three core parts of this process that all need to be addressed um uh i'm curious gudrun you you mentioned your early work um you know brought you into um you know working with companies like bayer and that's all very interesting i know one part one thing I learned about you after having embarrassingly, as I jokingly say, mansplained to you how PCR works, which is the most embarrassing that I, I know you That's don't so consider silly, me to have done I, that. No, I've forgotten it. It's, I, I, okay. And if you ask me a question about this, it's been, Rick, how long? I graduated in 1999. But anyway, what were you going to say? But the point is, you do have a specific um, history working with PCR with uh, uh, I think working with viruses. Am I right? Or did I make that up? No, it was just gene frag. It was like clones that would reconstitute as um, once you did the PCR on them, you would see specific genes that turned on with toxic responses from it was, I think it was dogs humans and rats okay um, yeah so the premise of my question is that's also very interesting you know to start there uh you know in your in your educational early career period and then move into uh naturopathic medicine from there you know um it again it kind of challenges the notion of quackery uh, if if you you have such a wide base of experience that also obviously has been a very specific part of the COVID crisis and a lot of people learning like me, what PCR is for the first time, 
Um, and I think being given a very limited, almost misleading uh, explanation of what it is, uh, and not to mention uh, the the description of it as any kind of meaningful test for uh, an illness. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, yeah, a little more about what your experience working in the lab with PCR and with genes and, and specifically clones? Again, I don't know if that word means what I think it means. Uh, I'm sort of pulling in alternate context now from other people we know. Um, but I'm just curious what, what your experience in that in that lab setting is and with this tech. Okay, yeah. So I have to proceed this conversation with it has been so long since I was in that uh, field that I'm probably going to just sound like a total crazy person to anybody who stayed in that field because by now I'm sure the language has all changed. But uh, what it came down to, I was very aware that our data that we gave to these companies for the drugs that we were testing for like big companies like Bayer, who I knew, this was a way of, um, it was called, the company was called phase one. So it was like the first data you would get about the toxicology profiling of certain drugs. And so it wasn't on actual animals, but it was um, on, yeah, either rats, dogs, humans, and you would print what we called clones on a glass sheet and then you would uh, use the, you would PCR them up and then the ones that um, would light up would be the genes that happen to grow enough. Um, I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but what I, what eventually happened is I did spend six months on a specific um, probe or clone that we were using because it, it was, um, it was basically broken and we couldn't get it to turn on at all. And we were working with 500 base pair. I remember we were working with 500 base pair clones or probes or whatever you want to call them. And I took six months and my supervisor helped me to figure out how to clone this thing. And um, we successfully did it. And I finally submitted it to the company that we, we can start doing this. It was going to be a bit expensive. Um, and then after six months they, of work that I did, and I was really proud that we finally could clone this thing and whatever, um, they said, well, it's just cheaper for us to use a 50 base pair clone that we can order instead of the 500 base pair clone. So to me, my understanding at the time, that means you're going to pick up a whole lot more junk. If you're using a 50 base pair clone versus a 500 base pair, and it's and we're sending all this data worldwide to different companies testing their drugs. Like I wasn't happy with that decision that was made and I didn't feel good about what we were doing moving forward if we were okay kind of cutting corners like that. Did that make any sense? I think so. It all sounded very important. Um, and again, it's, 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 consistent with what I hear, you know, a lot of people, the kind of people we do work with whose backgrounds are similar, you know, it's very interesting. Um, it's very interesting work to be part of, but I, I, I do hear a lot of stories like that where something then just kind of doesn't feel right. And um, you get your up close experience with what some might call corruption or um, influence uh, for profit. Um, but I, I think the final big topic I really wanted to talk about, and of course, just to update uh, folks, I have uh, been talking with Bart and um, we're going to uh, 
try again with a different platform with him uh, in in the coming weeks. So we are going to have Bart back on, and um, that'll be a wonderful follow up conversation to have. So the thing that I think is most important this is sort of in the title. Um, but if you think about COVID, and Matthew has done a lot of work looking at what what are the actual comorbidities of COVID and of adverse events from the shots, and it's not, I don't think, what people think it is. And to me, cutting right to the chase, what it looks like is people who were already in bad health or in shaky circumstances were and continue to be most likely to die from if you're looking at just COVID, then COVID. Uh, and in a lot of cases, same thing with the adverse events from the shots. But the point I want to put forward and, and see if we can discuss is the extent to which it's less important what specific pathogen, uh, source of illness, uh, injury, whatever you're dealing with, and more so about your overall health and your ability as a whole human to be able to heal and to restore. And um, I, I wonder if we, if you can speak to that, Kadrin. Yeah, 100%. Um, what, there's all sorts of different terms for this idea, like the terrain idea, the mm. um, microbiome plays into it. There's all sorts of different words, but I know for, my practice, what I found over time in the beginning, I loved chasing after little microbes like H. pylori or candida or um, whatever parasite the doctor would find in a fecal test. Or it seems so easy to just say, that's the bad guy. Let's chase it off. Let's find something that it doesn't like and feed it to you. And then it, it goes away. Um, but it's really not that simple. We, we need, I had too many patients that became obsessed with fighting off um, the specific microbe and they would be better and they would still be stuck on trying to get rid of the little bit that was there. And it's, it's healthy for us to have a bit of these um, bad bacteria or bad virus uh, situations. Uh, so what am I saying? So eventually, yeah, I just would work. I'd say the, the problem is not the microbe. The problem is why is your immune system reacting this way to the microbe? Go ahead, Matthew. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, just uh, what you said, I was going to mention, uh, I think we all have some E. coli in us. Right. Exactly. Right? And, and yeah. so it, it's the balance of these things. And it's there's something that goes on, whether it's it's in the terrain or whether it's something else that was introduced from the outside. Um, you know, there's something that, that caused a disruption. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I think that um, there's so much clearly that has to do with our own body in processing these things um, that, I, that I've come to dislike the attempt at words like germ theory and terrain theory. Like I almost want to like say, you know, let, let's, you know, we, we can improve the conversation by getting rid of these words that sort of specify too much uh, you know, by definition, right? Because all of these, you know, internal and external clearly matter. You know, it's like you, you have a body and you have what's outside the body and then you have interactions between the two. And obviously the body, you know, changes according to these interactions. And it seems like uh, like we, we've done ourselves a disservice by, by uh, allowing 
uh, language to be introduced that, you know, confused the conversation further. And I suspect that this was intentional. I suspect that it was observed that it created these confusions. Um, but yes, uh, you know, the microbiome matters and, and, you know, it, it's, it's not just whether or not you have something that might be pathogenic at certain levels. It's, it's what is the state of the body? What is the state of the, the bio, the microbiome? What is the state of everything going on in the system? That reminds me, actually, Matthew, I've been wondering, um, yeah, because there's obviously, and Liam and I talk about this a lot, uh, there is a definite fight between people who are like terrain people, or they say the virus doesn't exist, or that sort of thing. And I think a big part of where that's coming from, the people who say the virus doesn't exist, is that there were some FOIAs made to try to get the exact genetic sequencing of COVID-19 and that was not produced. And am I right in understanding that it exists, but it exists in a uh, plethora of different, um, different sequences? And that's why people are so confused about whether they exist or not, or? Um, this is, this is where I'd want to go talk. To, uh, so I have not, uh, I'm reading so many things that I have not gone into the specifics of SARS-CoV-2 sequencing, and there are different types of sequencing. You know, you, you can sequence for a certain number of, of nucleotides at a time. Um, you can do nanopore sequencing so that you can sort of get get you know further than than certain boundaries that you were that you were testing. Um, but I, I, I don't want to speak too much on the specifics of SARS-CoV-2. I think where the no virus people have a point is there's clearly some bad literature within um, within virology that has stuck and some and some literature that's not explained well. And there's this idea of isolation, which doesn't get defined well uh, by the, the no virus camp. Um, you know, it, there's no such thing as isolation in the, in the purest sense, right? Um, you, you always have an observer at the very least, but you're always looking at something in a medium, right? And and there's this this idea of okay, well, if you can't observe it without a medium, then it's not really isolated, so therefore it doesn't exist on its own. And then you get into sort of philosophical conversations like like what is a wave? Does a wave not exist because you can't observe it without a medium? Right, um, and then, or, 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 um, but probably more appropriate is, you know, uh, if, if we don't call a dead fish a fish, like if we don't want to call viral fragments a virus, which is fine, um, but then we don't want to call a dead fish a fish. In which case, you know, how do we study, you know, fish from the deep sea? You know, if if we take them out of the the ocean, they've died by the time they get out of the ocean, or can we somehow trap them and move them to another container? Well, isn't that kind of like putting something in a petri dish, or, or you know, uh, a microbe in a petri dish, or, um, or putting it in some other cell culture, where at the very least, when we sort of shine a light, I'm going to say shine a light um, instead of you know just just to give the um, the analog of what like PCR might be, if we know what sequences are going to be just in the medium before it got there, and then we observe a new set. Um, that is distinct, unless we think that there's interaction between the two that somehow produce nucleotides, then we know that we are looking at the thing that we, you know, ported to that, that uh, medium. So the, there is, uh, you know, there's difficulties with, pardon. 
Um, there, there are difficulties with that conversation and they're not being fleshed out well. And I think that, um, that there are certain people on the terrain theory side who seem to be very aggressive about pushing these things. Like it, it's clear that they don't know what they're talking about themselves, right? They, they bought into something that they heard and that there are people, you know, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the Baileys would be able to have a good conversation with us. Right. Uh, maybe Andy, uh, Andrew Kaufman would be able to have a good conversation. But it's clear that that a lot of people who have recognized that there are problems in the literature and there are problems with what we're being told have then said, oh, well, then these guys must be right about all of the rest of it also. And but there are conversations that need to be have about uh, had about all of the rest of it. But some some people are being very aggressive without being able to get to the point of, you know, what are the definitions, you know, like what, what, what is appropriate? Um, you know, um, and, and I don't know how well I just said that, but, uh, uh it, it is made sense weird. to me. Thank you. Yeah. That made sense to me as well. And Bart is chiming in. Lack of evidence is not evidence of lack. Isolation of viruses is defined usually via rivers postulates. No virus has met these criteria, but that does not establish their non-existence. They absolutely do exist. That to me seems like a very articulate way, a very easy to understand way of putting that. Well, and I, I think I, I, I'd want to push back at that immediately, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, accepting some particular set of postulates as a definition, right? Uh, you know, that's already uh, creating a definition where you say, okay, you've got these criteria and and a process um, mm -hmm. for for exploration of those criteria. Um, you know, uh, I, I I don't agree that that Rivers postulates are what what people who study viruses necessarily look to like that, mm. that would not, that would not describe my wife's work, for instance. So, um, you know, but, but, the, but it is true that what we should do is go back to, you know, what is a definition and, and, uh, is that definition a good definition? And it is true that a lot of good science happens at the level of discussing those definitions. And it, it's the, it's the core of the science. And it, it's kind of like learning the fundamentals of calculus you can do a lot of calculus without the fundamentals, but if you don't go to the fundamentals, you're not really having the conversation of whether or not calculus works or how it works, right? So um, yeah, you have to understand that the epsilon delta proofs, and then you get into, you know, neighborhoods um, and things that, that most people who studied, you know, your basic calculus one and calculus two never even got to, you know, talking about those things. But um, yeah, uh, so well, any, anyway, um, it, it is it is where you're getting to a point in the conversation that most people can't discuss well. And that's true for people on both sides of the debate. But it does come down to definitions. Uh, and, and even if a definition doesn't work, like what Bart said, lack of evidence is not evidence of lack. Um, it may be that what we what we need is to find an appropriate definition and appropriate set of, you know, a set of postulates or, or, you know, a set of things that we do. But, you know, like, like I say, if, if you change mediums and there's something there that wasn't there before and you can identify what the changes were, I think that that's good enough to, to use the word isolation. Um, yeah. And so it, 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 at some point it's rhetorical, but you do have to get to why 
the rhetoric matters or doesn't matter in a case. So anyway, um, I, I'd, I'd rather like prepare for, for a full conversation like that, like, uh, like sit with my wife and go through, uh, you know, her work and, and, and what the research says, um, go back through the history. It's, it's not an easy one to have. I think it'd be so awesome because the, it sucks that it divides so many, you know, I have half of my, it feels like half of my um, colleagues are on one side and half are on the other. If we could just agree on that one thing, we could stop fighting about silly things or if it could be explained, but yeah. Yeah. I, you know, the, the no virus people I think are doing a, a, um, they're doing a good service and I think also causing confusion at the same time. The good service that they're doing is forcing us to question certain aspects of virology. And I think that they, that the wool has been pulled over our eyes in terms of the relationship between virus and disease. Um, and, and something I, sh I, I meant to say before is, uh, you know, when we're talking about equilibrium, we're talking about microbiomes, we're talking about, you know, the fact that we all have some E. coli or, you know, H. pylori may be in there without causing a problem. Um, uh, it, you know, anything that you put in your eye, you know, it, you know an eyedropper to, um, I, I probably twice a year, I, I use something to get rid of itchy eyes when, when pollen's bad, right? Um, there's only so much of that I would ever want to put in my eye. <laughs> and it, if you told me I was going to bathe my eye in that stuff uh, every single day, just like dunk my head in and open my eyes, I would say, I want to under, I want to study this before I, I think about doing that. Um, there are a lot of things that in very small doses um, are perfectly fine and okay. And then suddenly if it's in a large dose, it's not okay. And I, I personally wondered if the HIV AIDS conversation, for instance, um, whether there's sort of a reverse causation right? Like people's immune systems wind up harmed for one reason or another. And then suddenly this virus is able to replicate to a point that we notice it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or, 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 you know, maybe, maybe it wouldn't have even, you know, had uptake in the human body prior to that. But, you know, what, you know, what is actually causing the effect? And when I think of the fact that, that HIV, you know, especially, well, we have a different definition of it in Africa, which seems weird to begin with, but uh, so much of HIV was in the, the gay community. And, you know, if you have people going to, you know, let's say bathhouses or participating in, you know, um, you know, vastly more amounts of sexual activity, meaning number of partners, then what you might have is exchange of bacteria that pushes people out of equilibrium in some way. And eventually the immune system just gets tired and suddenly you have somebody who gets sick all the time. And does that person then necessarily have greater viral replication? And then that viral replication, that may also create a new problem, but it may not have been the source of the original problem. Right. And so I, and, and, and understand I'm not speaking authoritatively for anybody who's watching. I don't know the answer to this question, um, but I'm thinking about it enough because of the no virus people, at least partially, right? They do know that there are mis that there are shenanigans that have gone on, and that they they do know there are sort of mistakes and descriptions of things in the literature, and we should be exploring that. So, you know, it, it's it's an interesting thing that has gone on, and and you know we will have to do better science to correct it. We're going to have to unwind whatever authority you know Lysenkoes grips are on the institutions to be able to get to these questions um, well, at least to get to all of them. 
Now we're coming up on the end here, but there is something that this is making me think of that is very timely that I want to bring up. And um, it has to do with uh, definitions, with uh, perhaps misunderstanding what one person is arguing versus the other in a way that totally messes up the discussion. So as you guys know, I assume, um, there was a video that came out, a couple of videos by, by uh, Project Veritas. And the premise of the video is um, basically a, a undercover journalism um, operation that ostensibly there's a, uh, a Pfizer representative who reveals um, that Pfizer is engaging in, in some equivalent of gain of function research. That's the takeaway that a lot of people have, uh, have gotten from it. And um, there's, some, there's some reasonable hesitation on the part of some. Um, and, um, I think there are others who are, uh, just completely misunderstanding what some of the hesitation is. Now, with your permission, I'd like to play, um, a quick clip from, um, a couple of guys who I, I very much admire. Um, but I want to show an example of what I think is a complete misunderstanding of, of, of something. And, uh, I just want to very quickly, uh, see, see what, what you guys think. So just uh, about a minute. Project Veritas. Nailed it. Project Truth, that's what Veritas means. Uh, so, you know, great work by Project Veritas. Great work by James O'Keefe. And all those conservative media outlets uh, that ran and covered because they were scared that maybe this time they finally got O'Keefe, they finally got O Project Veritas, should be ashamed of themselves. And some of my friends on the uh, health freedom movement that are, have gone down a rabbit hole of convincing themselves that gain of function doesn't exist. And it's all fake. They need to uh, research not only the medical work, but the legal work of Francis Boyle. We discussed it with Alex Jones last week uh, in, in, the, in the sidebar interview. Francis Boyle is one of the best legal minds uh, on this subject, has been talking about this forever. If you're going to go down a rabbit hole of saying, no, it's all a super duper, triple fake, double conspiracy, conspiracy within a conspiracy, because gain of function doesn't really exist. Uh, you better research and review that work. And some of the, and some of the people saying that are good people that do great work, but they've gone down a rabbit hole in a trap. Well, Gain of Robert, function exists. It's dangerous. And Pfizer was doing it in the COVID context. And thank God James O'Keefe exposed it. And okay, so um, I think he was talking about you, um, because and the reason I say that, and not exclusively you. But there was a back and forth on Twitter that that you and he engaged in, and it was perfectly fine. And this is the kind of thing that disagreement or having different, you know, perspectives on something—that's not the issue. Um, but I wanted to bring this up for that sake to to say I think this is an example where he completely misunderstands the alternate take. Right, and 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 he did use the same language that he used talking with me on Twitter. Um, yeah. He, you know, rabbit hole and 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 whatnot, and I and. You know, I invited him to have a conversation. Um, I, I would still invite him to have a conversation. Oh, yeah. And, you know, uh, he, he says rabbit hole as if like I'm contradicting what the, the common notion is. But um, my guess is I probably talked to, you know, uh, had, uh, you know, many times the number of hours of conversation of people who do this sort of work than he has. And I think that that would become clear in a conversation and he would know where we diverge. He doesn't know. I think he doesn't know where it is that we diverge on the subject. And it's simply because of language. Yes. If, you know, is there a difference between, um, you know, is there such thing as gain of, well, what do we define as gain of function, first of all? 
right? If, if you make an infectious clone, and just like uh, Gudrun, you know, you were talking about making uh, clones that were like 500 base pairs long, right? Um, you know, do we call something that you can make uh, that is that would look, you know, under a microscope uh, like a virus, or or that would have the 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 sort of structure of a virus if you just look at it as a nucleotide sequence. When do we call that a virus, and when do we not call it a virus? Right. If it is not replication competent in the quasi species swarm, like you know, you make one and, it, and it's one nucleotide sequence, but does it? Does it branch out and become that cloud of a, of a diversity of sequences that could sort of crawl into new environments, right? And that's why the quasi-species swarm is what it is, sort of game theoretically. Some parts of it may be able to climb into a new environment, a different sort of body, whereas, you know, if, if it were too, um, too narrow, it wouldn't necessarily be able to get into some terrains and, and replicate there, right? So do we want to... so? you know, you have robust swarms with enough genetic diversity to be able to, on its own, move around and replicate in the world. Then you have something that is that is highly purified, and anthrax is a good example of this, actually. You know, um, highly purified anthrax is something that, that can be used as a weapon, but it's not something that, like, you have some big panic that there's, like, anthrax from a cow in a field or whatever, like, that's not you know, a panic to the world or something like that. Um, it, it, do we call it gain of function when we change something that is only going to be in a clone that is never going to be robust as a quasi-species swarm? It's never going to be robust. It, it doesn't have the right properties and capabilities. And each one of these capabilities that we add to it, right? Like, is it is it infectious? does it replicate you know is it going to be robust like each one of these things takes all the different sequences that are out there and if you have thirty thousand nucleotides you have about 10 to the eighteen thousandth power different ways for that okay some of them are never going to be you know stable even as a sequence okay among those that are are they going to be infectious among those that are are they going to be robust and when i use the term gain of function it, it applies only to the robust swarms because that's the only thing we would ever need to worry about. If you have a clone, no matter what properties it has, makes you grow a second head, kills you, whatever. If it's not going to replicate, it's not going to, to be something that could cause a pandemic. And as of yet in human history, nobody has demonstrated, hey, I made this thing in a virus, uh, in a lab, and it was able to live on its own out in the world Right. No, nobody has demonstrated that yet. Um, and, and I mean, there, there are claims that SARS-CoV-2 is that. Right. And, and, I, and I would say that the, the genetic information is kept under such lock and key. And even the guy who was who was who was, um, you know, creating noise at Johns Hopkins saying we need to make this an open source database. Um, he he died very mysteriously. He was in his 30s. Like he was a very young man. Um, he he died mysteriously. And I think that there's something to that, uh, actually. I think that uh, it's very possible that what SARS-CoV-2 is, is a bunch of different infectious clones that have been released over time. And that what that man may have been talking about, uh, that, that Trish uh, Walker guy, 
I uh, can't remember his first name. Um, what he may have been talking about was the idea of directed evolution in an animal model. At first, I thought it was gobbledygook, but I think the way people are interpreting it is actually the incorrect part. But yeah. what, what I think he's talking about is actually having the virus uh, viruses that are robust in primates and then seeing how it evolves in them when we put certain agents in them, right? Um, maybe we put the vaccines in them. Maybe we put the vaccines and we see how that the virus sort of mutates, um, you know, in order to get around. You know, it might not be mutation. I mean, selection is probably a better way to put it because it's not a matter of changing the mutation rate necessarily. Um, but it selects around, you know, those antibodies, for instance. Right. And then we take those sequences and we create new clones. And then we can release those clones. And even if some people have gained immunity to the prior clones or other coronaviruses, that new clone may still be able to infect them and create a new wave of illness. And so, you know, what I would like to do is invite, I mean, you know, if, if um, you know, Barnes or anybody else, uh, you know, would want to come have that discussion with us, I'd be happy to. I'd bring in J.J. Cooey. He can describe this better than I can. Um, I think I can describe certain elements of the probabilistic mathematics of why it's unlikely that we ever find one. That, that you know, if, if we can send this to a lab and say, we have a sequence, produce this. Labs do that now, right? Labs do that. And, you know, did we, did we hit on one that is robust? Well, if it has all these features that we added, like I said, that makes, you know, makes you have two heads or makes you die, then it is probably not going to survive very long in the wild because what viruses want is not to hurt us. They want to coexist with us that, you know, and I say want, but I mean what the incentives for their own replication survival. And so, um, yeah, that that's the question. And, and so it's being wrapped up in the language of this one term game of gain of function, right? Creating new things that happen, just like the fluorescence that you might have in, in uh, you know, it, it, that sounds like what you were doing, uh, you know, gene expression clones, um, uh, you know, uh, those things that you might insert into a sequence. You could call that gain of function, but I think that trivializes the terminology. Gain of function is a, is a you know, the better definition for it would be where you have a robust viral quasi-species swarm. No one has demonstrated that in history ever so far. And I think that that's the scare story that causes the DOD and the NIH to be able to, to put billions of dollars of research into whatever it is that they're working on. We have to defend you against this because it's just so easy to do. People can do it in their, in their basement, in their garage or whatever. No, people could make infectious clones. People can make purified anthrax in their garage. Sure but people aren't going to make something that is going to make the whole world sick at once in their garage. It's nonsense. And we have no examples of it in history. So, you know, yeah, I, I is there any, like, I, I want his email, you know, I, I really want to have a conversation with him because he's taking two, yeah. uh, you know, he, he doesn't know what he doesn't know. And he's right. taking, um, and he's taking an aggressive stance on it as far as the debate goes. And I want to point out, he one thing that really bothered me about what he said, which, again, I'm saying this as if I'm saying it to him, because hopefully we will get to have this discussion directly. But he, the way he characterized those who didn't cover the story, the way he said they were cowards for not immediately jumping on and giving an attaboy to Project Veritas, 
isn't that sort of a reckless way to approach this, especially on a topic that most people should be aware that they don't fully understand? In term, it, what I mean is, isn't caution in terms of reporting something like this? Right, and and, and I and I I think this is actually a, a form of cognitive warfare that's been thrust upon us. Actually, um, I talked briefly with Brett Weinstein about this, um, though I I, I kind of I, I should probably call him again and have a second conversation now that I see the way things have played out. Mm. Project Veritas has a very high track record, right? Like they've been they've been brought to court many times and have won all those court battles, so far as I know. I know that there are like some personal issues between uh, James O'Keefe and some people he's worked with. I'm going to set those aside and be neutral on that on that level. Um, their work has been solid, and the criticisms of this event are not largely criticisms of James O'Keefe necessarily or or Project Veritas as in, you know, nobody's saying they're reporting dishonestly. It's possible, I suppose. Maybe the DOD put a gun to their head and sucked them up in some sort of charade. I doubt that's what happened. I think it's more likely that if there was a charade that it was conducted on the Pfizer end and, and the DOD may have a gun to their head, in, in, at least in the sense that, I mean, it, Pfizer is basically just married to the DOD at this point, right? There's no other way to put it. Pfizer is just married to the DOD. And you know what we should do? Um, may, maybe you should um, clip this out, like whatever that was, like a three, four minute conversation we just yeah. had and, and make it its own video. Um, you know, I would Good want idea. Robert, uh, I would want Robert to see this uh, and understand that it's not about like, you know, accusing uh, Project Veritas of having done anything wrong. It, it's about, um, it's about interpreting the information through a complex lens, both of relationships and of what, and and of what the science actually says. What this this gain of function again, and and this is this is kind of like getting to the definition of a virus, right? Um, yeah. Like on that fundamental level, this is That's kind of like our train theory stuff. Mm. And and so I I worry that this is cognitive warfare to make us fight within the community, in order to actually say let's. Let's be real careful about the definitions here. I think this is one of those times when the when the Brett Weinstein let's be as careful as possible method is is the better method. And I will say, um, I've I like like I've, I said at the beginning, I am a huge supporter of Viva and Barnes. I think Barnes is doing tremendously important work in both the court of public opinion and the court of law. Um, I, I admit he is very focused on taking Pfizer to task as opposed to being in any way. He's very cautious. about. That's right. Coaching. That's right. He, he is involved in the Brick Jackson lawsuit. And, I should, yes, I, he's I, the I lead attorney. and I've, I've met him and talked to him. Um, he's yeah. a real nice guy. Um, I, I, you know, and I, I expected him to sort of say hello and meet me. And we had like a, a 15 minute conversation. You know, uh, he, he's very giving of his time. He's a very smart guy. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that that this is where definitions uh, become a little bit weird in the conversation. And it's not even clear to me what I don't know. You know, I don't know what documents he was referring to. Sure. You know, I, I would want him to 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 share that and show that in order to be able to have a full conversation. But again, you know, I'd, I'd love to have him on rounding the earth sometime, um, yep. you know, just to if for nothing else, just to talk about how difficult science conversations are or to talk yeah. about the Brooke Jackson, Jackson lawsuit. Um, you know, she's a friend of mine. I know her. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm rooting for that lawsuit. I'm rooting for Vernon Mendenhall. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, that's a very important, like we are, I think 
like these are friends of friends. We're all on the same team here. Uh, and so and also you have been like I, I I've broached with him having you on for sidebar, which is the weekly the show he does with Viva where they interview a guest. So you and I have reached out and it's just busy emails back and forth. But um, that is something I think will happen. But the reason I bring it up, it's relevant to this conversation with Gudrun, because one of the cons- and this will be our final thought and then we can wrap up. But. One, the concern, the reason why someone would want to misdirect in this large way is to set up this, you know, this maybe false narrative about the potential of biowarfare, but also potentially to direct away from prioritizing individual health and the ways mm. in which you yourself can simply live a healthy life, be the most robust human with the best immune system, the best psychological health, you know, your outlook on life. It's kind of hard to do that if you're constantly concerned about whether it's Pfizer or Wuhan or Peter Daszak or whoever the heck unleashing a real bioweapon this time. Like that itself is an unhealthy world to live in. So if it's not true or if there's reason to remain skeptical about it, to me, that seems like the healthier option. So, Gudrun, I wonder if, without giving medical advice that you're not allowed to give, I wonder if you have any closing thoughts with that we can leave with the audience about how to how to be healthier as a human. <laughs> um, I think that the it's really just simple to be healthy. It's so simple. It's not easy the way things are going. Um, and sometimes I have to say, I worry about how much technology is hurting us. But at the same time, then I, I, I'm trying to understand what you guys often talk about, like the cryptocurrency and all that stuff. And I'm, um, I know we're going to be okay, no matter what happens. Like we, because we are around nature and whatever created us and how we're created in the end, it's going to be fine, but it really is as simple to, to, as taking time for yourself, unravel the thoughts that tell you, you have to constantly bigger, better, harder, this whole idea, no pain, no gain. We've got to be done with that by now. And um, I don't know, but in general, just know we're going to be okay. And it's as simple as like getting outside, getting some sunshine um being around nature eating good food and good food doesn't have to be like high-end organic food it just as long as you do your best like we're all going to be fine and no matter what happens um and even when things like i worry about what's happening with technology and everybody in front of a computer screen and stuff then i see the other side of it like this whole blockchain idea of like not being able to control people. Uh, So there's gotta be good in everything that comes along. And I think as long as we keep that in mind, um, we're all gonna be okay. There is symmetric power and then there's asymmetric power. And uh, asymmetric power is looking very scary at the moment. Um, You know, there's part of me that that thinks that we're gonna be okay too, um, but we have to uh, acknowledge the realities of, of, you know, things in the past, uh, whether it's, concentration camps or gulags or or all of those things and we have to to do our best to avoid that 
What is symmetric or asymmetric? Do you mind explaining that? Sorry. Yeah, um, asymmetric is where you have technology that's controlled in just a few hands. Usually weapons of war are the most easy to point at asymmetric technologies, whereas symmetric technology, I mean, your vacuum cleaner would be a symmetric technology. You know, everyone benefits from it. And I even define technology economically, as in if you have more output than your inputs, then you have like an exponential mm. growth curve as opposed to just a linear growth curve. Um, and uh, so that exponential curve, that's what I think of as technology on an economic level. We have more wealth, more abundance because of it. So it could, it could be uh, machines, it could be methods, it could be social organization, beliefs, even, you know, it could even be uh, religion might be a form of technology. But um, those that are symmetric tend not to be particularly dangerous. Um, I think that the biggest problem that we face with governments is that um, the amount of investment that they put into asymmetric technologies, and this includes even like biowarfare, and and you know somehow that that it winds up being connected to allopathic medicine on uh, on a level of credibility, oddly, and that that winds up you know turning people away from you because they have like I said consistent messaging, whereas you're being thoughtful and you're willing to meander around in thoughts. Uh, in, in instead of just saying something that is that is a straightforward statement but isn't really the truth thank you yeah thank you well and uh yeah this has been wonderful every t i talk to gudrun at least once a week so it's well twice a week these days um and it's really nice to finally have you on rounding the earth um and uh, is there there's someone who watches this that you know is this appropriate to do a shout out or would that be too much? Yeah, because maybe she's probably watching right now. My aunt Mer Mary, love you. And this is probably so she's just fangirled the two of you guys forever. And she thinks she's so intelligent, but she's one of those people who will never talk to you guys because she thinks he's not intelligent. Uh, but yeah, if she likes you guys, then I know I love you guys. And we found you guys totally different ways and just one day randomly it came up that I talked to Liam every weekly and she her jaw dropped because yeah so uh, hi Mer yeah hi Mer <laughs> well good people find each other that's what I've learned in life yeah. Um, and of course, to to Bart, uh, he says, sorry to have missed participating in this. Looking forward to a second attempt team. Well, thankfully, Bart, you you have participated. You've thrown some wonderful thoughts in. But uh, I can tell you are just to the brim with things you, you would like to contribute to the discussion. So we will do this again. Um, thank you to everybody who has uh, popped in. And I want to um, take the opportunity to remind people that you can join us, become part of the community at roundingtheearth.locals.com. Um, we, uh, we do at least one uh, weekly exclusive live stream here where we talk about stuff that isn't quite ready for the masses, uh, which allows us to think a little bit more on our feet and try to put things together. Um, and we've got just a tremendous community of people who actively uh, contribute, participate, throw things in that we learn from stuff that we wouldn't know about except for those contributing on here. And if you want, um, you can become a, a member for free um, or you can become a paid member. Um, uh, you can also get a free month of that quote unquote premium membership with our coupon code, which you're gonna have to go to roundingtheearth.locals.com to see. Um, but thank you to everyone who participates there. And we hope to see even more of you join us there. Um, any final words, Matthew? Uh, no, I enjoyed the conversation. 
Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Gudrun. And uh, sorry we missed you, Bart. Um, thanks for uh, for the comments that you uh, threw into chat with us. Okay, we'll talk to you guys again very soon. Mm -hmm.